Are you, are you thankful for Jesus today? I'm thankful, and I'm thankful to be able to worship Him together with you. <clears throat> you know, we've been talking the last few weeks about growing spiritually. We've looked at some of the, the basics, you might say, some of the basic principles of how we can grow spiritually, how we can become more whole. Uh, that's God's will for us, isn't it? It's God's will for us to be restored to His image, to be saved in His kingdom. But, you know, sometimes I think we are in danger of coming to see spiritual growth as simply a checklist as well. You know, I, I, I had to stop and think a little bit about what really spiritual growth is all about. And I, I came to consider this week that... Um, Spiritual growth is really about relationship. About what? About relationship. Now, not too long ago, some people might have thought I would be the last person to speak about relationships uh, because I seem to be hopelessly a bachelor. I, had, uh, I was very busy. I was involved in ministry. I, I thought that, yes, I want to have a family someday. Yes, I want to... Uh, to be in a loving, committed relationship, but it seemed like I was always busy going here and there, doing this and that, and I never really had much time for relationship. And I can tell you that there were times when I, I thought, you know, I know a lot about relationships, but, you know, knowing a lot about relationships and having a relationship are two different things, isn't it? They're two different things. And so, so I, I remember that... Um, I'm going to put a couple people on the spot here today. I hope they don't mind, but... I remember uh, Dr. Chung was talking to me one day, and he was, I don't remember exactly all the, uh, the pressure that he was putting on me, but you know, many times people would say things like, you know, you're not getting any younger, and uh, you're getting pretty old, and uh, there's not, you know, if you wait too long, there's not going to be any good girls out there, and those type of things, and um, well, one night Dr. Chung was talking to me, and he was telling me he had someone he wanted me to meet. And um, I said, well, you know, I never really, it, it never worked very well, these arranged uh, introductions. And um, I guess, uh, you know, I'd been burned a few times too many, and um, I didn't really want to go there. But um, anyway, he kept, kept after me. And um, after that, we were at a meeting in Michigan at the time. And um, after that, I saw him a few more times, and he started calling me. I think he started calling me like once a week. And uh, saying, when are you going to come to Georgia? I have someone I want you to meet. And, um, you know, I was thinking about a relationship. But does thinking about a relationship give you a relationship? No. And so, um, eventually, I did come down to, to uh, Georgia. And I, I met uh, who would become my wife, Jane. And, um, and uh, we began communicating. I'll never forget how nervous I was after I... I got her phone number, and, um, I, and uh, I thought, well, you know, tomorrow morning I'm going to call her on her way to work, and I was watching the time. I wanted to make sure I didn't forget. I had to, had to travel that day, and I called her up, and I was so nervous. I didn't know what to say. But, you know, sometimes relationships start with the smallest things, right? Sometimes relationships start in even awkward ways. Is that true? And... Uh, we began talking, and we began talking, uh, oh, I think it was like a couple hours a day we were talking. Uh, we were trying to get to know each other. 
um, and we were trying to learn more about each other. We were trying to build a relationship. And then, uh, oh, it must have been about six weeks later or so, we saw each other once or twice. I came down but, um, for other meetings, but uh, about six weeks later or so, she came up to Michigan. It was spring in Michigan, and I had a, an apartment that was right on the St. Joseph River. And um, it was Sabbath afternoon, and uh, actually Sabbath evening, Saturday evening, and we went down by the river, and we're sitting on a, on a uh, like a uh, bench swing, and just talking. And um, that's when I asked her if she would be my girlfriend. And uh, that officially began, I guess you might say, our relationship. If you want the rest of the details, you'll have to talk to Jane. This is getting a little over my head. So, um, but um, that was. That was April 24, and um, we were very happy. In fact, we took a picture right after that. Can you tell that we're a little happy? Um, we, were, uh, we were happy. It started raining, and we came inside, and, and we were very grateful. And that began a, a, a journey in our lives that often involved a journey for me. I would preach uh, Saturday morning in Chicago, and um, that late afternoon I would leave, and I would drive down to Dalton, and get in some early hours of the morning, and uh, we would spend Sunday together, and, and then Monday morning she'd go to work, and I'd drive back um, actually to Michigan, and uh, where I was working on a graduate degree. And so that began a, a, a relationship that continued to grow. And I have to tell you, driving north from Dalton to Michigan is a lot further than driving south. What was it that made the southerly commute seem short? What was it that made those late nights of driving seem easy, even though there were, you know, snowstorms and closed freeways and all kinds of difficulties? What made the, t- the phone calls seem too short and too, in- uh, too infrequent? What made it was a relationship, a growing relationship where Jane and I began to love one another. It was not the concept of marriage. It was not the theology of marriage. It was not a checklist or a, uh, an idea. It was a person. It was a person. Her name was Jane. And I was in love. And that's what made all of the difference. It was a growing love between two hearts. And, you know, we can talk a lot about what it means to grow spiritually, how to grow spiritually, but we must not forget that at the essence of Christianity, Christianity at its basic core is a relationship. It's not a, do- a set of doctrines. It's not a set of creeds. It's not, a, it's not theology. It's not ideas. It's relationship. It's lo- a love relationship, a growing relationship with someone that we are loving more and more every day. And as you turn with me in your your Bibles again to our Scripture this morning, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 immediately follows. We have to consider the context. Hebrews chapter 12 immediately follows Hebrews chapter 11, right? And Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the what chapter? The faith chapter. These are the heroes of faith. This is, this is Abel and, and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is Samson and David and Moses and Joseph. And these are people that we can honestly look up to and we can be inspired by and we can say, wow, I want to have that kind of faith. I want to have that kind of spiritual growth. I want to be that kind of person. 
But if we come to the end of this chapter, Paul gets a little bit reflective here in Hebrews chapter 12. And let's read our Scripture again today. He says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance or patience the race that is set before us. Notice Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Looking unto who? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we can talk an awful lot about the inspiring characters that make us want to grow spiritually. We can talk about reading our Bible, and we can talk about our prayer life, and we can talk about knowing ourselves better. We can talk about living by faith instead of by our feelings and impulses. But ultimately, if we want to grow spiritually, it's about growing in a relationship with Jesus. It's about growing to know Him better. And so this morning, I want to look to Jesus. I want to follow Paul's admonition here. I want to turn our eyes for a few moments to the Savior. I want us to follow His counsel to look to Jesus today. You see, our love, Jane and I, our love didn't grow because we had all of the system down or the ideas down or what to do. It grew because we spent time. We spent time with each other. And so today, we want to consider Jesus. I want to look at just a few qualities of Jesus, a few attributes of Jesus today that I think help me to appreciate and grow in a personal walk with Him, a personal relationship with Him. And the first one, the first one that I want to share together is that Jesus knows. You know, I remember I was, I was working with a friend of mine. We grew up together and uh, lived not too far apart, my best friend, and his dad was a surveyor, and sometimes when, when, uh, when we were free during the summer or whatever, we'd be, you know, as teenage boys, we'd go with him and, and his family. His older brother was also a surveyor, and so they, we would work together. And I remember one day we were out. I was, with, I was with my friend. His name was Othniel, and um, his brother's name was Nathan. And I remember we were out working on a survey line, and I was, you know, just the the gopher. I didn't know anything about anything, and so I'd just be the one that would have to go run here, go there, go get this and take that, and maybe sometimes I'd slash a line. But um, I remember this, uh, his older brother Nathan was uh, peering through his transit, and he was talking to me as I was standing nearby. I was probably 13 or 14. And he said to me, Chester, he said, you know how, you know how you can change the record books of heaven? And I said, no, and he's, he's still peering through his transit, and he said, I can show you. You want to you you know? And I said, sure, and he, he, he looks away from the transit, and he grabs a hair out of my head, and he yanks it out. And he said, the Bible says, even the hair of your head are numbered. And, I, you know, as a kid, I was like, well, that's sort of cute. It's sort of, sort of clever. But that idea stuck in my mind, the idea that Jesus knows about our lives. Isn't that what Jesus was trying to say? When he says, don't you know that even the hair of your heads are numbered? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Let's look at what Jesus said there when he tells us how intimately and how, how intricately he is interested 
and how He knows about our lives. Matthew chapter 10, and let's read, begin reading verse 29. This is what Jesus says. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Just a penny. Two sparrows. And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. The first thing that I see about Jesus is that Jesus knows about my life. Jesus knows about my struggles. Jesus knows about my hardships. In fact, sometimes you almost have to ask yourself the question, if Jesus knows so much, why do we pray? Why are we supposed to pray to Him about these things? It's not because we have to inform Him of what's going on in our lives, is it? It's not because we're going to surprise Him when we tell Him what we really think and how we really feel. Not at all. Jesus already knows. Jesus knows every detail of our lives. The reason we talk to Him in prayer is not so that we can, we, our prayers will bring Him down to us to know our condition. It's so that our prayers will lift us up to Him to know His heart. You see, there's a big difference. Jesus knows. Jesus is familiar with your challenges, with your troubles, with your trials. Jesus is familiar with the heartache that you feel in your heart, with the hopes that have been, that have been, that have been extinguished, with the griefs, the pains. He's also familiar with the joys, what makes you happy. Jesus knows us. Jesus tries to communicate that to us in this passage by telling us that even the hairs of our head are all numbered. Jesus can relate. You see, Jesus experienced and endured the trials and difficulties of life. Aren't you glad that Jesus is not a God who doesn't understand what it means to be a man, what it means to be a human? Aren't you glad that our Savior, the Bible says in John chapter 1, the Word that was in the beginning with God, the Word who was God, that Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Let me tell you, he understands the human experience because he is a human. He went through the experiences that we go through. He grew up in a home that didn't have a perfect environment. Let me tell you, he was he was surrounded by half brothers and sisters that didn't accept him for who he was. He was surrounded in a community with young people that didn't think the way he thought. He was a social misfit, you might say, in a positive sense. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus was not just one of the boys. Jesus was not just someone who, who had an easy life. Jesus was ridiculed by his friends. He was ridiculed by his peers as he grew older. The scribes and the Pharisees called him a bastard child because he didn't have a father. There's all these, these challenges, these heartaches, and these pains that Jesus felt. And Jesus understands when we go through difficult times. I'm thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful that Jesus knows. Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus grew up in a complicated environment where he didn't quite fit in. Are you ever tempted to think that, Jesus, that nobody understands your experience? The good news is that Jesus understands, and Jesus knows. You know, I remember I spent a summer selling Christian books, and one of my favorite books to sell was the book Desire of Ages, one of the best-known commentaries on the life of Christ. And one of the things that we would do as... As we would, you know, present this book to, to, uh, to those who might be interested in it. Um, sometimes you knock on the door and you see someone coming to the door and you can just tell they're having a bad day and, and maybe it's the mother of the home and, you know, there's some dirty-faced kids holding onto her legs or bouncing off the walls and you can just tell she's tired and, 
And, uh, you know, what better than just to point her to Jesus? And in that book is a paragraph. It's one of, the, one of my favorite paragraphs. And, in fact, in the, in the version we were selling, it had a, it had a blowout on that, on that page with this paragraph. And uh, many times at the door, I would take that book and I'd flip it open to that page and I'd hold it open and I, I had it memorized so I could just share this passage with her. It says this, Jesus knows the burden of every mother's heart. He who had a mother that struggled with poverty and privation sympathizes with every mother in her labors. He who made a long journey in order to relieve the anxious heart of a Canaanite woman will do as much for the mothers of today. He who gave back to the widow of Nain her only son, and who in his agony upon the cross remembered his own mother, is touched today by the mother's sorrow. In every grief and in every need, he will give comfort and help. Isn't that beautiful, friends? Jesus knows. And it's not just the mother's hearts. It's the father's hearts. It's the kids' hearts. It's the grandparents' hearts. Jesus knows the burdens of our hearts. I'm thankful there's a God who knows what we're going through. But there's more than that, friends, because Jesus cares. Jesus cares. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, a few passages over from where we just were. Matthew chapter 19, we find the story of Jesus being surrounded by important people. There are so many important people that wanted to talk to Jesus that it seemed that no one would ever, or some of them would never get the chance, and Jesus would never get any rest. Jesus was very, very busy, and at the fringes, the outskirts of this crowd of people pressing around and wanting to to talk to Jesus, wanting to to ask Him questions or to hear His advice, at the outskirts of this crowd were were those who didn't have much influence in society. There were those who who didn't have the, 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 the prestige or the, the power to be able to press into that inner circle. There was a group of mothers, a group of women and their children, and the little children looked up to Jesus. They wanted to see Jesus. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, Then little children were brought to Him, that He might put His hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked them. The disciples said, Go away. The Master doesn't have time for people like you. Can't you see how many important people want to talk to Him? Can't you see He'll never get through this this waiting list? Go away. But Jesus, ever sensitive, because Jesus cares, friends, Jesus, ever sensitive to the feelings of those around Him, immediately arrested the situation when He said, Forbid them not. Verse 14, Jesus said, Let the children come unto me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Jesus spent time with these kids. Why? Because he cares. And as Jesus was blessing the children, there was one of those important men, one of these people who had great wealth, who had been sitting watching and listening and waiting to see Jesus. And he saw Jesus do something that was unheard of for a man in his time. He saw Jesus, instead of brushing away the unimportant in society, he saw Jesus embracing the little children, holding them on his knee, talking to them in a way that the little children could understand. And this important man, instead of being offended because his place in line was usurped, this man's heart was touched. We call him the rich young ruler 
But having taken in this scene of Jesus blessing the the, the children, he was impressed that this Jesus was not an ordinary teacher. He was not an ordinary man. In fact, his heart was drawn to someone who cared, genuinely cared about people, not for their pocketbooks, because they were human beings. And so he ran after Jesus. You know the story. Good master, what must I do that I can inherit eternal life? You see, Jesus was so different from other people because he cared. That's how much different he was. I mean, this, this rich young ruler was impressed by Jesus so that he was willing to become a disciple of Jesus. Well, almost willing, right? Almost willing. He was drawn to Jesus. In fact, we find that throughout the life of Jesus, crowds often thronged his steps. Why was it? It was because, because he cared. He cared about people. It didn't matter whether you were a, a little boy a teenager, an older person, maybe a retiree. It didn't matter. You were important to Jesus. You were important to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Jesus knows and Jesus cares. But it gets better, friends, because Jesus loves. And this isn't just the type of love that we are accustomed to. It's a love that the more we know about it, the more we marvel. We talk about the buzzwords. We talk about it being an unconditional love. But until we have seen that we are loved unconditionally, we will not even start comprehending what unconditional love is. We don't find unconditional love in our society, do we? We really don't, unless it's a a manifestation of love that God has placed in someone's heart. The, the unconditional eternal love is, is really something that God alone possesses. Of, of course, He wants to give it to us. Jesus loves us in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. Did you catch that? He loves us in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. He loves us in spite of our habits, in spite of our addictions. You see, Jesus, I believe, loves the saint in the church, but He also loves the sinner in the gutter, doesn't He? Jesus loves the kind-hearted atheist, and He loves the mean-spirited Christian. Jesus loves them all, unconditionally. It doesn't matter who we are, who you are, Jesus has a love in His heart for for you. He loves the young person who has lost her way and the parent who has made mistakes. Jesus loves the well-adjusted and the socially awkward. Jesus loves each person because that's who He is. And who we are can never change who He is. No matter what I do, I cannot change Him. Nothing that I can do can change the heart of God. The heart of God has an unconditional, unrelenting, eternal love. And you might say, well, yeah, sure, but one of these days you'll just forget about me. I don't believe that. I don't think that if you have four children, it's harder to forget one of them than if you have nine children. I don't think how many children... I've known my grandmother was in a family of 11 children. 
Oh, what, if when you have 11, what's one more or less, right? I don't think so. Every child of God is unique and precious in His sight. And friends, if for some reason, by our own choice, we are not a part of God's eternal kingdom, there will forever and eternally be an aching void in the heart of God because God's love is eternal. Jeremiah 31 and verse 3 tells us, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. Before we were born, he told Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. Jesus' love is an eternal love. It's an unconditional love. You cannot do anything to make Jesus not love you. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verses 37 and onward. I love Romans chapter 8. It's one of those powerful passages. If you want to simply have a, have a summary of, of growing in grace, maybe Romans chapter 8 is one of those tra- chapters. It simply makes clear the difference between walking, following the flesh, and following the Spirit. But he ends, he ends just as we are speaking about today, looking to Jesus. Romans chapter 8, and notice with me, Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Basically, Paul is saying this. Listen, if God was willing, if God loved us so much that He was willing to send Jesus to die on the cross, you think that He's just going to sit back and fold His hands now and say, well, okay, we did it, come and get it. Or do you think God is going to say, look, if I gave all of heaven in the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm going to continue giving anything and everything you need in order to be saved. This is what Paul's saying. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, will he not with him also freely give us anything that we need to be saved? That's because he loves us. Listen, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who sent Jesus to die for you on Calvary's tree will send all angels out of heaven, if necessary, to deliver you from temptation, to make you an overcomer, to save you in His kingdom. That's the God we serve. That's the God of the Bible. Notice with me, continuing on, we're going to have to skip down to verse 37. Yes, in all these, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you get the idea that Paul is just overwhelmed here? He can't say enough. He just, I I can't describe it in human terms. That's how much God loves us. I am persuaded. Are you persuaded? Are you persuaded that God loves you that much? I'm persuaded that Jesus loves us. But you know, Jesus doesn't just love us the way we are. Jesus believes in us. I don't think there's anything more empowering for a young person than to have someone they look up to believe in them. As a kid, I think that's probably the the greatest gift my parents gave to me was believing in me. The things I I look back and somewhat, I scratch my head, the types of things my dad allowed me to do around the farm. He thought I could do it. 
And the fact that he thought I could do it inspired me to try pretty hard to do it. I remember I was 16 years old, and uh, we had a van that was pretty old, worn out, or, and uh, I had just we we just we'd had an old truck that had blown a, a ro- uh, thrown a rod, and and uh, my dad had hired someone to come and to to rebuild it in our shop, and so I had watched him, and so I told my dad one day, I said, you know, our van it's it's burning a lot of oil, it's running pretty bad. I saw him rebuild that big block, you know, 454. I think I can rebuild this engine. And my dad let me. Now, looking back on that, I'm like, how in the world did he let a 16-year-old boy take an engine out of a van and rebuild it? And the worst part is, two weeks after, not even two weeks, it was like five days after we got it back together, we took the van on vacation up the East Coast. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And um, now I think, I think, man, if I had a 16-year-old kid, would I do that? I don't know if I would, you know? I mean, but the fact that my dad believed I could do it inspired me to study and to learn and to ask whatever I needed and to get it done. My dad's belief in me empowered me to do more than I would have otherwise tried. You know, I think of a story that took place in the temple in Jerusalem one day. We read about it in John chapter 8. And it was early morning in the temple, and Jesus had made his way. I can just sort of imagine the day. It was cool still in the desert that time of day, and the roosters and birds were still making their sounds, and uh, people were scurrying about to begin their duties. The sky was turning golden. The hills around Jerusalem were beginning to be struck by the sunlight. Jesus comes to the temple where a small gathering of society's misfits is growing by the minute. These were the people. These were the people that didn't usually come to church. You know why? Because they didn't feel comfortable at church. The religious people? Well, they knew that anyone who was poor they didn't have the blessings of God. And so the poor stayed away from church. There were the sick and the crippled, because these had been told by the religious leaders that these curses were because of their sins, and their lives would never amount to anything because God didn't care about them. The people gathering, coming into the temple that early morning, were the children who were accustomed to being swatted away like mosquitoes and pushed to the position of least importance and irrelevance. These people gathering in the temple that morning were attracted to Jesus because He was different. Though He was a religious man, though He were a holy man and a teacher, He seemed to actually care about them, and He accepted them just the way they were. With every miracle of healing they watched, these underprivileged of society, these misfits, these rejected by the religious world, these people watched these miracles. They watched the crippled become well, and hope sprang in their heart that they too could have the blessings of God in their experience. With every expression of acceptance and forgiveness, hope for their future swelled, and the crowds grew 
with these people who were looking for peace, for happiness, for the blessing of God. And suddenly, we read the story in John chapter 8, suddenly there was an an interruption. And as Jesus was teaching there and healing, and and, and as these uh, children and outcasts and others had come into the temple early in the day, the Bible says that Verse 2, John chapter 8, verse 2, early in the morning he came into the temple. All the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Can you imagine the commotion? Can you imagine the commotion as in the back of the crowd, these holy men, self-righteous men at least, march dragging this humiliated, broken woman to the front and leaving her at the foot of Jesus in front of everyone. I can imagine the crowd dropping away, dropping back. I can imagine them a bit horrified. Maybe mothers were covering the eyes of their children. And everyone was waiting to see what Jesus would do. And you know the story. You've read the story. You've heard the story. We're not going to focus on the story, but I want you to think about what was going through the minds of the audience in the temple that day. They'd seen Jesus accepting sinners. They had seen Jesus healing those who the religious leaders said were outcast from God. They had seen Jesus speaking and and treating tenderly the little children. And each time they had seen Jesus caring and loving and accepting and elevating and restoring. Hope had sprung anew in their hearts that they too might be accepted in God's eyes. But now this woman caught in the very act is brought here. And I can imagine that some of them were thinking, you know, even Jesus must have a limit somewhere. Even Jesus must have to draw a line somewhere. Jesus can't just, Jesus can't just accept everybody, can He? And they watched and they waited to see what Jesus would do. Jesus knew a trap had been set for him. But he wasn't concerned about the trap. He was concerned about the woman. You see, God finds a way to save. That's his heart. That's who he is. And so after he rode on the ground, and after beginning with the uh, oldest and all the way to the youngest, those Pharisees, those self-righteous religious leaders left the temple... Jesus straightens up and he looks at the woman. He says, where are your accusers? Can you imagine the bated breath of those who are watching? To see what will Jesus say? What will Jesus do? Where are your accusers? Has no one stayed to accuse you? No one, Lord. And then... The words came out of Jesus' lips. I'm sure they were probably spoken softly just to her. But as a pin could be heard dropping in the temple that day, I'm sure everyone heard them. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Can you imagine the looks on people's faces? Can you imagine those who had been rejected by the religious leaders and pushed out of the temple day after day and week after week and year after year? 
Can you imagine as they looked at each other with their eyes wide and their mouths gaping? This Jesus doesn't even condemn this woman? Listen, if Jesus doesn't condemn her, there's hope for me. If Jesus doesn't condemn her, there's hope for all of us. I am sure that the, a little whispering began in the audience as, as Jesus spoke these words. I'm sure the astonishment turned to some sort of whispers, and the whispers turned to some sort of high fives or some sort of expressions of joy. And pretty soon, pretty soon, they were outright singing and shouting, Hosannas to the Son of David, because this was not an ordinary religious teacher. This was not like the scribes and Pharisees. This Jesus, He loved sinners. He loves us. We are accepted not just by Jesus. We're accepted in the Beloved. And there's nothing more empowering than to know that Jesus accepts us. And he loves us no matter who we are. Oh, the temple courts were ringing with hallelujahs and hosannas because Jesus was not an ordinary person. Jesus knew their struggles, Jesus cared about their struggles, Jesus loved them, and Jesus forgave them. Oh, what a man! What a Savior! What a Savior we have. Oh, I'm so thankful for Jesus, aren't you? It's a marvelous thing to be loved just the way we are. But it's an even greater and more inspiring experience altogether to have someone believe that you can be different. Notice what he said to this woman. The first part must have stunned and amazed her. The last part must have overwhelmed her. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, some people might read that and think, Jesus, you have awfully harsh, awfully harsh standards to apply to someone who's so low, so broken. But get one thing very clear, friends. Jesus wasn't saying, if you mess up again, I won't love you. Jesus was simply saying, I believe you can be a different person. I believe you can overcome your habits. I, can, I believe you can overcome your weaknesses. When Jesus says, go and sin no more, and this woman, this broken woman, about a, as low in society and a low, as low in humanity as a person can fall, this woman said, what? The master teacher, the great healer, the, the, the one that everyone is talking about, he believes that I can be different? Listen, friends, if Jesus believes you can be different, you can be different. Because Jesus not only believes, Jesus empowers. Jesus said, go and sin no more. You see, it's one thing to get to know Jesus. It's another thing to, as we get to know Jesus, become to recognize that through His power, we can, in fact, do all things through Christ who loves us. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How can this happen? How can we live an overcoming life through faith? Because when we get to know Jesus, when we get to see His character, when we get to understand that He knows, that He cares, that He loves, He believes. When we believe, when we understand that He believes in us, we are inspired to live a life for Him. You see, it's about relationship, isn't it? It's about relationship. It's about Him first loving us 
and that love inspiring a response in our hearts. And it all happens. It all happens by looking to Jesus. By keeping our eyes fixed on Him. By giving our imaginations license to dwell on the scenes of eternity. Those who are saved at last, I would propose to you this morning, friends, will have kept their eyes on Jesus. I just have a sense that when we all get to heaven, we won't be able to take our eyes off of Jesus. He's still going to marvel, it's still going to, we're still going to be marveling and amazed at who He is. Wherever He is, that's where we're going to want to be. Thankfully, there's a big sea of glass, right? So we can all be there at the same time where Jesus is. Are you looking forward to that day? That's going to be some worship service. If you think that Jerusalem's temple rang loud with hosannas when He was here walking among men, what do you think the shouts of the 144,000 and millions and millions, a great multitude who no man can number, what do you think their praises are going to do when they're echoing off the walls of the holy city? Oh, you think anyone's going to leave at noon? I think we'd be happy to stay there forever if that's where Jesus is. I think that we're going to have a pretty long service, at least one of those first services. Because the way I understand it, there's going to be some sort of a special celebration. Jesus is going to be celebrating. His people are home. And He has something to give to every single one of us. Right? Can you imagine standing on that sea of glass with the millions upon millions and standing around and singing and Jesus says, all right, it's time. It's time, it's time now for the crowns. And one by one, Jesus is going to call out our names. You know, he's not even going to need a list. He knows them all. He, can, he knows us individually. And one by one, our names will be called, your name will be called, my name will be called. Can you imagine? In front of the whole assembled universe, hearing your name spoken by the God, the Creator God. Oh. And then there's probably going to be a long aisle and as we go down that aisle towards the throne, I can imagine every name that's called, there's going to be praises and shouts and applause and maybe a doxology sung. I don't know. It's going to be amazing. And they're all going to be singing for you. We get down to the throne and I can just imagine. I think Jesus is going to give me a hug. I just think He's going to be so excited to see me. It'll be the first of many personal times we spend with our Savior. But the first is always special, isn't it? And then an angel perhaps will hand him a crown with our name on it, your name on it, my name on it. And Jesus with his own hands, scarred hands, will place that crown on your head. And I can only imagine that when he places the crown on my head, friends, and I look at those scarred hands. I can only imagine that there's going to be a bit of a, a bit of resistance welling up in my heart because my heart because I'll recognize you'll recognize that crown doesn't really belong to us. Jesus, that you should be wearing that crown. 
You're the one that bought my salvation on the cross. You're the one that saved me from a life of sin. You're the one that cared about me and loved me and believed in me and brought me to your promised home. But as you try to give your crown back to Jesus, he's going to laugh. Put it back on your head and say it's yours. I bought it for you. No one else can wear it. Welcome home. You see, my friends, it's all about a relationship. Do you know that, Jesus? Do you know that, Jesus, who wants to have a personal, personal, intimate relationship with you? I believe, friends, that I could have studied marriage. I could have known all about it. But if I didn't spend time with Jane, I'd still be single. We might know all about salvation. We might know all about how we can grow spiritually and how we ought to be saved. But if we don't grow in a relationship with the Savior, we've missed the very essence of the gospel. You see, my life was forever changed when I came to love a person. Today there's someone waiting for you. He's waiting for a closer relationship with you, and he's the, he's the most amazing friend you can ever have. He's the God of the universe. He's the creator of all. He wants, he wants to know you better, and he wants you to know him better. You have troubles in your life? As the song goes, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness, you see? There's light for a look at the Savior, and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Is there someone here that with me wants to turn their eyes to Jesus today? Would you like to say, yes, Lord? I want to have a closer relationship with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for being a God who knows, who cares, who loves, who believes, and who empowers. Lord, we know that we know, the, we know the facts. We can recite the verses. We can tell about the promises. We know that there's a God who wants a personal relationship and, and, and an eternal relationship with us. But Lord, sometimes we live as it's just a theory. Help us to experience the reality of a closer walk with our Savior. As we want to grow spiritually, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org